morning and welcome to Rising. We are chugging right along this week. I think it's going by quickly, maybe. Yeah, time flies when there are a lot of um, very high-profile impeachment-style scandals up, I guess. That's what Something it is. like that. I don't know, man. Well, what's the latest, Brianna? The latest is that former President Trump is denying that he was holding up classified documents after CNN first published an audio recording of Trump discussing a secret government document at his New Jersey club in 2021. Now, if you missed it, here is some of that audio. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. Wow. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. Wait a minute. Let's see here. Yeah. <laughs> I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm -hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. But look, look at this. You attack. And Hillary would print that out all the time, you know. <laughs> send it, no, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah. The pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying, because we were talking about it. <laughs> and, you know, he said, he wanted to attack Iran and what? He's in the papers. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably, right? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a, a yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified yeah. it. Now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classified. Now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And now an update. Trump told Simifor and ABC News in an interview on Tuesday, I would say it was bravado. If you want to know the truth, it was bravado. I was talking and just holding up papers and talking about them, but I had no documents. I didn't have any documents. When asked about the use of the word plans, he may have used to describe some of the items in, 2020, in the 2021 meeting. He told Simifor, did I use the word plans? What I'm referring to is magazines, newspapers, plans of buildings. I had plans of buildings. You know, building plans, I had plans of a golf course. Well, National Security Attorney Bradley Moss told Semaphore that a bravado defense would be a tough sell in court. Here's MSNBC's Morning Joe reacting to this latest update. It also speaks to the impunity with which he has operated yeah. uh, mm -hmm. with his supporters, especially for the last several years, which is, I can just say, that these were plans for a golf course or for one of my buildings, despite what's explicitly on the tape, and they'll buy it. Yeah, and that the, the quote that Mika read there about the plans, the buildings, he seemed like it was an evolution as he was talking. Yeah. He was like, wait, building plans, wait, golf course. Ah, that's what it was. I mean, it, it, it's nonsensical, and you're right. It, it's, it shows a lack of, of, of respect for the people who have followed him this far. That He feels like he can just say anything, and they will believe it. And polling suggests he's not well, altogether wrong. Exactly. A lot of people do, and a lot of Republicans, elected officials, important figures, uh, will follow him too. And whether they actually believe it or not, they'll profess that they do in order to not anger him or anger his voters. He's lived for the most part, a, a political life of no consequence. He can get away with whatever he wants. He did lose an election, but of course, the story there is he actually didn't, and that people believe that too. And what's so different right now is that he faced legal challenges uh, and where there are courtrooms where there will be consequences. He can't just talk away. 
The classified documents chaos hasn't seemed to phase Trump supporters, at least in this latest polling from Morning Consult. Released Tuesday, it shows that for the first time in their survey, Trump tops President Joe Biden in a 2024 hypothetical matchup. The former president has a three-point lead over Biden with 44 percent support and 41 percent support, respectively. Mm. Does that surprise you that no. in the midst of all of this that Trump has finally eked it out over Biden? And to be fair, there have been polls, you know, showing this the other way. Generally, the polls of Trump, DeSantis, Biden, honestly, all show just very tight races so mm -hmm. far. Um, often Biden's a little bit on top. There's been some, including this one, where Trump is a little bit on top. There's some that show Trump doing better against Biden than even DeSantis. There are some showing DeSantis doing better against Biden than Trump. So it's all over the place. We don't really know yet. Um, it is true that what's going on right now is not hurting Trump very badly among his voters, among the Republican base. I think there's a lot of frustration with his chosen course of action with respect to the documents among conservative pundits. Mm. They wish they didn't have to deal with this mm -hmm. from a like pundit perspective. But it's not changing anything fundamental about um, about the race. People who you know were for DeSantis instead would like DeSantis instead. We're already there. They're not really trying to use this as a. I mean, can you imagine it in a different political era, a political era of not that long ago? <laughs> your opponent, even your opponent in the same party, your rival for the for the nomination, having a huge scandal at possibly being being prosecuted, that would be a gift. That'd be a huge gift. You would use that to argue that you should be the guy, not him. The dynamics, and, and honestly, I think that dynamic would probably still hold, g given any other person. If, yeah. if Mike Pence was being indicted for yeah. something, or, or Chris Christie, or Nikki Haley, the other candidates would all say, well, this is why it shouldn't be them. It should be me. Yeah, it, it's a stunning contrast to what's going on on the other side of the aisle right now, where Third-party candidates who are not representing themselves as a Democrat in, in the form of uh, Cornell West are being attacked with more viciousness by the party. There's more division with someone who is not even representing themselves as a Democrat as between Republicans actually competing in the same race at the same moment, not to mention, of course, the vitriol that's being heaped upon Marianne Williamson and um, RFK Jr. from within the Democratic Party. There is so much more antagonism within the party there than you're seeing with the Republicans. And it does feel like within the conservative political space right now, the fidelity, for, like it or not, whatever you think about the ideas at play, mm -hmm. the fidelity is to uh, ideas. This idea of Trumpism, this 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 notion of uh, an adversarial perspective on the duopoly, an antagonistic relationship with establishment politics, a, a, a verb for change, even if, from my perspective, it's being poorly executed by someone like Donald Trump, that he didn't follow through on his promises when he was in office. That seems to be the guiding principle as opposed to a pat fidelity to the party itself. And the consequence is that you have people needing to demonstrate their faithfulness to those the concept of Trumpism even as Trump himself is embroiled in this kind of scandal. And I do think he sure. also benefits from a real argument that can be made that this is still a selective prosecution issue, even if he's guilty. Trump has the right enemies for, from the Republican standpoint, and those enemies are the mainstream media um, and, the, and the, the deep state, or you know, whatever you want to call it, if you don't prefer that terminology, but the, the amalgamation of, of permanent 
um, national security bureaucrats who wanted business as usual, who, who will have business as usual regardless of which party is in power and which person is in office, that you know, have thwarted the efforts of you know, Obama and on everyone to, um, to ramp down our global engagements, our wars, have fought that. And, and Trump, like them, campaigned very hard on ending that. And, and ran up against um, this, this, the blob, this yeah. organization that is now targeting him. And the, the, the weakness of Trump is that he made himself a very, very easy target. And so I think from a, yes. you have to make the case, or Republicans have to believe this is true, and if they don't, they're just gonna have Trump, that tactically, does it do, is this the person to lead the resistance against the deep state if he just opens him out, himself up to these yeah, easy but, takedowns, but, that's, but that's they the don't thing. care. The, the nature of what Trump did, this is what Democrats really gonna have to contend with. It is, it's silly, it's dumb, it's an unforced error, it's an own goal. Yes. All of that is true. It, it, it might speak to um, some kind of hubris, maybe even ignorance, it could speak to a lot of things, but fundamentally the nature of the crime, unless you believe that there is some real danger in these state secrets, being exposed to some foreign adversary. There's a real national security concern, which I think a lot of people are skeptical of at this point. Mm -hmm. It's just not that yeah. substantive of right. a legal violation. And the substance, the danger, frankly, is in letting um, people like Mark Milley and whoever else make policy right. without the elected representatives of the people weighing in, without accountability to the American people, without the implementation right. of the so, foreign policy vision that the people have. So, so my, my point is that it, the, I think Democrats, the, the guiltiness of Trump, the silliness of him coming up with these mm -hmm. excuses on the fly, the ill-advisedness of him going on these shows and saying stuff that I'm sure his lawyers are cringing at, all of that right. can be put on a bucket on the side if you fundamentally see him as someone who's being real These documents, they were plans for a golf course. What are you talking about? The sound effect in that video, you can hear the the, the, right. the papers rustling like crazy. It's, it's so bizarre. But the, the point is that it's fundamentally just not that big a deal. And if your priority is wanting a fighter who is adversarial to the, the intelligence agencies, the deep state, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it, this prosecution is literally demonstrating why he's the only option and why no one else can really exploit the investigation that he's undergoing, the prosecution that he's undergoing, because that puts them on the side of the bad guys. The FBI, the deep state, the people that the voters desperately want to see unmoored from the position of power and authority. Right. But is he the right person to do the unmooring? To Who do else the is there? I mean, literally anyone. There's no, there's no one else who has been well, that's his, any that's willingness. his strength, that he has made people believe that he and he alone it's not, right it's not a matter of belief. Even if it's just a rhetorical posture, is Chris Christie going to go after the intelligence agencies? Is, is, is Nikki Haley going to question. cancel is the Donald FBI? Is Donald Trump going to do any of those He things. says he will. That's why but he didn't. But, but, but that's why I keep saying the word rhetorical. Right. Rhetorically, he's there. Anybody can even can outstrip Trump by demonstrating that they're willing to be rhetorical and substantive, but they won't even meet him at rhetorical. He, unlike all of them, he actually had the chance to do it because he was president. And no one is, and else is even saying they want to. So we're still I with Trump. I don't know about that. Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene aren't running for office, aren't running for president. 
So who who about? I, mean, I know you don't care for him, but Ron DeSantis is making all these same cases no, he's not. against. I mean, no, that's he's just not. not true. He absolutely is. He's self-described. He. I mean, has if it's not said, persuasive. It's not persuasive. But he is saying no, those things. He, he has said that his campaign is about wokeness. That's that's what his campaign is about. I haven't heard him. I, I've he's talking about the weaponization. He's even talked about the weaponization of the DOJ with respect to Trump. Yeah, his main adversary. He had to. That's, that's the whole point of this whole diatribe I'm on right now, is that everybody has to superficially circle wagons around Trump. But he has shown not for even one moment in his entire political career a sincere interest in doing anything other than an establishment politician. But neither As did Donald Trump, Trump says Trump often, <laughs> that's, that's not true. Wow. That's not true. And, and the voters can feel that. Voters can see that. It's the same reason voters are interested in someone like RFK Jr. Because whatever you want, maybe it's just rhetorical. And maybe he, if he gets into office, he'll be the same old kind of Democrat, the same old kind of Kennedy, whatever. What I'm saying is that's not a maybe for Trump because we already ran this experiment. Right. We know how he would govern. Right. And so he's vulnerable to people saying you yeah. didn't actually execute. But if no one else is even going to pretend, he's not actually that vulnerable. All right. We will continue to follow this and we'll have more rising in just a minute. Idaho prosecutors are seeking the death penalty in their case against Brian Koberger, who is accused of murdering four University of Idaho students in their off-campus home last November. If convicted, Koberger could actually face a firing squad. Defense attorneys for the suspect claimed in court documents filed earlier this year that DNA from other unidentified men was found at the crime scene. Koberger's defense also claimed there is, quote, no connection linking him to the four victims. A recent filming reads, quote, there is no explanation for the total lack of DNA evidence from the victims in Mr. Koberger's apartment, office, home, or vehicle. Hmm. Yeah, so we covered this um, a great deal when it happened. It was an incredibly grisly uh, crime that ended up being sleuthed out by some really interesting um, corroborating evidence. There was, a, at first, absolutely nothing that seemed to connect the crimes to a victim, uh, a perpetrator. And then we got all of this uh, camera footage of a car on the street at the time, et cetera. And now they've, they've, they've gotten to this point. Is there a robust discussion being had now about the legitimacy of the death penalty, as often happens in this case? There's often, even the family of the victims will have a principled objection to the death penalty, uh, whereas sometimes the mm -hmm. high-profile nature and grisly nature of a crime like this does raise questions about whether or not it is, is at times appropriate for some people. Sure. My view of the death penalty—so I'm generally opposed to the death penalty uh, because— there have been cases where they have the, the authorities have wrongfully executed someone who was innocent. We know that there have been cases. We know that people have confessed under um, psychologically manipulative and long, lengthy interrogations to crimes that it's later proven because of DNA evidence that they could not have committed. Yes. And you can't make restitution to someone you have executed wrongly. Right. That is the basis on which I oppose it. I don't really have a it's, I mean, it's, I don't have like a it's wrong to take a life kind of thing about it. Um, I, I think in cases where the guilt of the person is, again, I, I would not give the state this power, but I'm not necessarily perturbed by it in cases where the guilt of the person is like so overwhelmingly likely. I mean, I, I would reserve it for a mass killing or something, like mass shootings like the Boston bombers or the people like that. 
I am perfectly fine with them enacting it. It's not a, a, my policy choice generally. What but about the expense argument that the appeals process is just so expensive and there are understandably uh, due process concerns when the execution is at play that allow for a substantive appeals process and that it's cheaper simply to incarcerate someone for life? I mean, incarcerating someone for life is also quite costly. No, but this is not I'm making, not making this up. It is more expensive to kill people, to execute mm -hmm. people, because of the legal processes that have to, you have to go through to get to that point. Right. And, and to me, you know, imprisoning someone is a pretty harsh forever is also a pretty Some harsh might even argue thing. worse. Some people, right, some people who, who commit horrific crimes for ideologically motivated reasons actually hope to be killed and martyred, especially when it's a religious thing in context. What I find interesting here, uh, we should talk about the firing squad mm. angle. So that's because this state is one of very few states that actually has a law saying that if the drugs for the lethal injection cannot be procured, um, firing squad can be used instead. A lot of people probably say that sounds medieval and insane, but there are a lot of good arguments that the firing squad is a more humane method of execution than lethal injection, um, including Sonia Sotomayor, in one of her opinions, has actually fascinated, went into this in the opinion, saying that she has weighed those arguments and thinks they're compelling. Um, that death is uh, more likely and instantaneous. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, I was reading statistics of botched ex executions over time. No matter what method is employed, there is some very small percentage of executions that fail. Um, the the failure rate of firing squad is was was lower. There were fewer. There were practically zero, versus lethal injection, which is not necessarily less painful. It's prolonged and protracted. Um, it's easier on the people watching it because. You're not, there's something visceral about watching someone shot. Yeah. It's not necessarily easier on the person enduring it. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't have any substantive problem yeah. with the firing squad. And I frankly think that lethal injection allows people to hide behind the idea of civility in Absolutely. an act that is not in any way civil. My objection to the death penalty, in addition to the expense argument, the um, the ambiguity about guilt and innocence argument, the inability to make amends or restitutions if someone is later cleared by the evidence, is that I think providing the power to the state to commit murder de de degrades society and the state more broadly. And it's precisely because it is, I believe, an immoral and violent act that is made obvious when you're lining someone up before a firing squad. So if anything, I would frankly probably prefer we just be honest about what we're doing and have those more kind of visceral sorts of executions if it makes people reckon with what we're really doing here substantively as a society. The, um, the method of execution is actually another uh, powerful example of so-called experts or scientific or mm -hmm. medical experts you know, getting in there with, with their own agenda. That was the case of um, death by electrocution, the electric chair, which has a stunningly high failure rate. The first couple times it was tried, it was just torturing the person they survived um, because the, the, the people pushing that were all, you know, all about sell, selling these chairs, right. selling this execution method. Um, honestly, they have not come up with a more humane method than the beheading people with the guillotine, which yeah. is quick and immediate. Um, yeah. Well, you know, well, let's for a second um, talk about some of the evidence, obviously, as we read in the, uh, in the read uh, up top, 
Kober's uh, um, defense attorneys are questioning the connection between uh, him and the crime. Uh, there was a recovery of a DNA sample from a, leather, or a knife, knife sheath. This was reported earlier this year um, that was found in one of the victim's beds that appeared to be a strong match for Koberger. That language appeared to be a strong match is an interesting mm -hmm. way to frame that. Not clear why there is that degree of ambiguity. And of course, as I mentioned in passing, the, some of the earliest evidence was that the car that the car that he was in had been traced to the scene. Um, so this uh, white sedan, later identified as a Hyundai Elantra, was traveling toward the home at 3:30 a.m., making several passes by the house, and then leaving the area around 4:20 a.m. at a high rate of speed. Security footage from the campus of Washington State University, where Koberger was a grad student, showed a similar white sedan headed in the direction of Moscow, the city, not, you know, in, in mm -hmm. the American city, about 15 miles away across the state line shortly before 3 a.m., and then appearing to return around 5.30 a.m. So that's obviously circumstantial, but substantive as, you know, the, the, the kind of... Um, the alias, the timing of it all seems to have worked out. And then additionally, they tracked a cell phone pings to the location, which, again, that that kind of evidence has been interrogated and disputed in a lot of trials because it can be very broad and imprecise. Um, but that's what they have. Yes. And look, he is innocent until proven guilty. He is entitled to uh, a robust defense. He, he, the It is... Oh, absolutely appropriate for his defense attorneys to try to call into question this evidence or talk about the ambiguous nature or the circumstantial nature. Um, I, that, all that said, I, I find the evidence extremely compelling. I, I think there's no real doubt that it is him. I expect that he will be convicted in the, you know, the process should play out. But they have the car, they have the knife, his location, I mean, his history of interacting um, on social media with the victims. Mm. Uh, it, it's, it seems fairly cut and dry to me, but of course, you know, I'm, I'm not the jury and they'll make their decision based on what they hear as is appropriate, but I think, uh, I think they got him in this case, but we'll see. And we'll, we'll give you any additional updates on this case and stick around for more Rising after this. News Nation will be hosting a town hall with Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. tonight. News Nation's Elizabeth Vargas says that she hopes viewers will get a sense of who RFK Jr. truly is and that, quote, this is everybody's chance to really sort of get unedited and live, hear him speak and listen to how he thinks. The event will be held in Chicago and is expected to have an audience of Democratic and Democratic-leaning candidates, The Hill reports. However, not everyone in cable news is as open to hearing from Kennedy. Here's CNN's Jay Tapper. Do you think on the Democratic side you would do a town hall with someone like Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? I would not. Okay. Why? Because he spreads dangerous misinformation about childhood vaccines. I had a personal experience with him in 2005 when he became well, professional, a professional experience personally with him. In 2005 was when he began in earnest his anti-childhood vaccine uh, campaign. He wrote a story uh, for Salon.com that was jointly published with Rolling Stone, both of which have since uh, it, right? yeah. retracted yeah, yeah. the articles and you, Rolling Stone just completely disappeared it. It was like it never happened. Mm. Salon has a page where they acknowledge what happened and et cetera, et cetera. But Rolling Stone, it's just like, you know, it's like Hoffa. I don't know what, you know, it's just gone. <laughs> anyway, I, I just dealt with him and he was so dishonest in that yeah. experience. And since then, he lies about the experience 
frequently as an example of how the media is co-opted by big pharma. All right. Well, the irony. The media here... is co-opted by big pharma. That's a that's a lie. It's an outrageous <laughs> lie. Who could say it? Yeah, the irony here is that so this is being you know mm-hmm. framed as an opportunity for people to hear him at length and uncut and unedited and live and all of those sorts of things. RFK Jr. has been very clear that he thinks that podcasts are the medium that's going to bring him kind of political success in the same way that television advantaged uh, his uncle. And he has been doing the podcast circuit and doing these two, three-hour-long podcasts all over the place. So a lot of Americans actually already have heard him explain himself at length, defend his views at length, much more so than Jake Tapper choosing to go on establishment podcast Pod Save America with a bunch of former Obama speechwriters who have, since the Obama era, spent all of their time sitting behind a desk and performing live comedy shows of politics. So this is a really a big trust issue. I have no idea what he's referring to specifically with his interaction with RFK Jr. Of course, it's possible for anyone to misrepresent anything. But what the viewers are seeing, and this is a warning to anyone who has a substantive disagreement with RFK Jr. What viewers are seeing is him being willing to sit down and talk at length about what he believes, site-specific studies, et cetera. And on the other side, you see people making summary claims like he's an anti-vaxxer, he has a campaign against childhood vaccines. Dangerous misinformation. If you listen to RFK Jr., he will say, I am vaccinated, my children are vaccinated, I don't have a pogrom against uh, childhood vaccines. I have these discrete concerns that I have because of women coming to me with their concerns and because of my experiences as an environmental lawyer who has real evidence of the harm that certain toxins have in our environment and potentially have in vaccines. Now, what Jake Tapper could say is there's no evidence that conclusively or really even speculatively leaks um, vaccine, childhood vaccines to autism. That is a true statement that science backs up. But RFK Jr., very rarely, if ever, in my experience, having listened to a large number of these uh, interviews, averts to the contrary. What he says is, here's a discrete area where I think there needs to be more exploration. I think the science is unclear here. I think they're having the right kinds of tests here. And of course, it is true that that can breed a kind of ambiguity that might lead people to undercount the benefit of childhood vaccines when they are, in fact, very beneficial. However, instead of making those kind of substantive arguments that are legitimately in conflict with what RFK Jr. is saying, you get this disinformation, disinformation stuff, and I don't think it's getting through to anybody. Right. And and if you feel the way Jake Tapper does and that so many in the mainstream media do, why would you not want the opportunity to call him out if you're that? I mean, we're in the... I understand if, if you don't care, but we're in the, like the battle of ideas. Like that's our job, right? Is to explore policies and explore opinions and probe them. That's what he does on his show. I think sometimes quite well. Um, wh- why you would not want to take the opportunity in this case uh, is is baffling to me. Because again, as you said, it's not like refusing to interview him has the effect of preventing people from hearing from him. People are hearing from him on his terms and on his territory, mm-hmm. and. And I, you know, I want to know even more. You know, we interviewed him for some amount of time. We hope to have him back again because there's a lot more I want to get into. I want to know more about what he thinks, particularly are the policy ramifications mm-hmm. of what his, of his attitudes are toward, you know, because honestly, what he thinks about where the science is on, you know, certain vaccines is not as important to me. As, well, what does that mean? You want less government funding of it exactly. or more government regulation of it? Or, you know, what is the, that's what I want to want to get at. And I, and that, and I would think you would want every opportunity. Again, I want another opportunity. We had an opportunity. Right. I want additional opportunities right. to answer, the, to ask those well, questions. To, to your point, Barry Weiss asked him exactly that question on uh, her podcast recently. And, you know, there were, you know, you can not love that his 
answers. I don't think he gave as fulsome an answer as I think some people would have liked in that context. But people who are coming to him in good faith and curious about him genuinely are getting that kind of engagement from him. Do get a sense of what he's actually about. In the mm -hmm. same way, I wouldn't say Biden is Catholic and therefore uh, he must not believe in abortion rights. He must not believe in the death penalty. He, you know, his one's personal beliefs and what one wants to do from a policy perspective are separate. We've kind mm -hmm. of acknowledged that and accepted that in other contexts. But with RFK Jr., there is this weird um, pigeonholing of him and also combined with a lack of intellectual curiosity that is really, I think, siloing mainstream conservative mm -hmm. pundits and only going to contribute to their uh, the increasing public distrust and low ratings right. on those programs. So I'm really uh, glad and proud of News Nation, who we're kind of loosely affiliated with. We have the same uh, partner uh, organization, Nexstar, if anyone watching is unaware. So I'm really glad that they've decided to do this, and I'm really excited to watch um, what Elizabeth Vargas has to say to him and what you know other questions that arise. I think it's a really great opportunity for um, News Nation to, to which is a, a newer channel, to distinguish itself um, from you know those in the mainstream who right. are just taking a a see nothing hear nothing right. approach to his whole candidacy. Right. Um, in April, by the way, Roger Stone, who worked as Donald Trump's campaign advisor in 2015, said that RFK Jr. could lessen Joe Biden's chances and increase Trump's chances of a 2024 win. And I think it will help in the end uh, soften Joe Biden up for his defeat by Donald Trump. And to this, Vanity Fair said, of course, the right has welcomed RFK Jr. with open arms. The Atlantic has classified RFK Jr. as the first MAGA Democrat and said that he is, quote, feeding Americans appetite for conspiracies. Hmm. The first MAGA Democrat. I think that's a clever headline, but uh, just, you know, credit where it's due. <laughs> what does MAGA but, even uh, mean anymore, Robbie? Yeah. No, I mean, it's 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 um, he is he comes from issues like his his. Gateway to all of this was classic left stuff on energy and environment. It's why I'm, even though I appreciate a lot of the things he said on COVID and foreign policy, I'm still wary of him, but I'm happy to hear more from him, is because this is all grounded in a, a very left, left of center, progressive worldview. And, but, and, and, and somehow, but because the, the mainstream forces have so convinced themselves that, like, the establishment, the scientific community, the sort of almost the corporate community as well, is their constituency, is the people they rely on for guidance and advice, and he's threatening to that. Yeah, I mean, look, here's what's wild. And I just did this so I know. I have an episode of my podcast coming out tomorrow in which I go point by point through every claim that he's made with a doctor, an epidemiologist, Dr. Vinay Prasad, and say what's real here, what's not, right? And it's a mixed bag. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't criticize the stuff where he's wrong. But to make these blanket claims, I mean, to your point, one of his issues is with this National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act from 1986, which says that there is this broad um, uh, uh, liability shield for vaccine manufacturers. Do you think that's a good idea or a bad idea, Jake Tapper? You know, do you want to weigh in substantively on his concerns? Because if you do mm -hmm. not, then everybody who has a, a wide gamut of concerns that are much broader than something narrow like this act, including things that aren't really true, like the link between, like any kind of proven link between vaccine and autism, are going to throw their lot behind RFK Jr. instead of potentially saying, oh, here's another candidate that similarly has a, a concern with this um, uh, pharmaceutical immunity and will go after it without me having 
having to tie myself with a bunch of other ideas that maybe I don't actually subscribe to. And they just don't get that. Yeah, it's a special reservation for RFK Jr., the designation of crazy or beyond the pale yeah. that they have decided. Meanwhile, and also, they also think Trump is crazy. Like, from their standpoint, they think Trump is crazy and has spread dangerous misinformation, right, about therapeutic, about, you know, hydroxychloroquine and whatever else. That's from their own perspective. And they would clearly do a town hall debate with Trump. A hundred percent. So, so, they, so anyway, it's just BS. C CNN already has. <laughs> right. They have. They did it. So... <laughs> So it's it's not it's transparently not believable. It starts to make you wonder if the real thing that is concerning them about RFK Jr. isn't anything about his views on vaccines, potentially has more to do with his views on the FBI, the CIA, the deep state, his accusations of their role in his father and uncle's death and things like that, and his, frankly, much better than Biden record on actually addressing environmental concerns that Democrats like to pretend they care about and then completely inadequately fund. And so that, that is why like conspiracy theory, okay, most Americans are deeply distrustful of the corporate duopoly. Mm -hmm. And you can call that conspiracy theory and you can call that MAGA, but that's a very dangerous road to go down because most people feel that way. And if you want to turn to Americans and say, if you believe that, then you're MAGA, you're recruiting a whole new phalanx of MAGA people to join those ranks. Joe Biden declared that 80 million Americans would have to get vaccinated for, for public health or lose their jobs. And it was eventually overruled by the Supreme Court. I think that was, cra as policy goes, I think that was pretty crazy. But again, they would not, they would say, well, maybe you disagree. Maybe it's okay to disagree with that, I guess. But it's not, it doesn't get the crazy designation. Right. And I think that rubs a lot of people the wrong neither, way. Neither does starting any war, anywhere, not anytime. Nope, not crazy. Yeah, exactly. Just, just par for the course. Well, you can watch the town hall tonight at 9 p.m. and we'll have more rising for you right after this. In a recent interview, former President Barack Obama predicted that Joe Biden will have a smooth journey to the 2024 Democratic presidential nomination. I think uh, Joe Biden has done an extraordinary job leading the country through some very difficult times. Uh, I do not think that there's going to be any kind of serious primary challenge to Joe Biden. I think the Democratic Party is unified. Uh, you know, there was a lot of talk You'll remember when he was first elected, because Bernie Sanders had run, that somehow there was this huge split between progressive Democrats and more centrist Democrats. And the truth is, is that partly because of how Joe has governed, those uh, divisions have been bridged. Joining us now to weigh in is host of the Savvy Sabs podcast, Sabrina Salvati. Welcome back, Sabrina. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Now, to the extent that... Uh, Barack Obama might be right that it will be a cakewalk for Joe Biden to the White House. Is it because the Bernie coalition has been won over by how Joe Biden has governed? Or is it because the DNC is basically deciding that Joe Biden will be the candidate without debates, um, reordering the primary schedule and all of those kinds of things that might be described subjectively as rigging? I think it's because the DNC has already decided that Joe Biden is going to be the candidate. Uh, a lot of people that came from the Bernie Sanders movement 
uh, do not support uh, Joe Biden for re-election. 70% of Democratic voters don't want Joe Biden to run again. Uh, but Barack Obama is saying the quiet part out loud here. He's letting the American people know that the Democratic Party and the DNC select the candidate that they want. Uh, Barack Obama was also selected. That's why he, he was able to get into the White House. I think people need to take a look back and revisit the DNC fraud lawsuit. Because one of the things that DNC attorney Bruce Spiva was able to argue was that the Democratic Party is a corporation and that they actually do not owe you a fair election process. Now, this was actually after Bernie Sanders lost to Hillary Clinton in 2016. Uh, he was cheated, obviously. Bernie Sanders won every county in West Virginia, and the superdelegates decided to give West Virginia to Hillary Clinton anyway. Those are just one of the examples that happened during that campaign. But I think this should be a big wake-up call to the American people. And I know attorneys uh, Jared Beck and Elizabeth Beck, they fought really hard uh, against this and pushed back against what the DNC did in this type of rigging. But unfortunately, the court decided that they have every right to do that because they are a corporation. So I think I wish more Americans knew about that. It's really unfortunate that this happens. And I think Barack Obama, he will be a tool that is used once again come 2024 to fear shame people and voter shame people and tell them you got to get on board and vote for Joe Biden. What former President Obama was also saying there was that there's no real reason for a challenge, especially a progressive challenge, because of the way Biden has governed and that it's all hunky-dory, everybody's getting along, everybody on the left is or should be so happy with what Joe Biden has done that any actual effort to oppose him would be, um, would be, bad, would be in bad faith. Um, does that track with how you, know, you, a self-described person on the left, feel about how the first Biden term has gone? Not at all, Robbie. And when I'm out on the street talking to the people, the American people, particularly working class people, do not feel that Joe Biden has done a good job. The homelessness rate has increased uh, since Joe Biden's presidency. We still have to deal with inflation that hasn't gone away. Then we have this conflict with Russia and Ukraine, which happened under his presidency, not under Donald Trump's presidency. Economically, the American people, particularly working class people, are not doing okay. Now, though Joe Biden wants people to believe that just because he created more jobs, that that means everything's okay. They never tell you what these jobs are. They never tell you if they're full-time, if they're part-time, if these jobs include full-time benefits, if they're contract positions. A lot of the positions here in Massachusetts are contract jobs with no benefits. They never tell you what they are. And I think that people like Bernie Sanders coming out very early on to support and endorse Joe Biden, I think that was a big mistake. But I also feel like Bernie Sanders and other members of the squad had already been told you have to get on board with Joe Biden or uh, you could risk like losing your seat or this could affect your political career. And that's how it works. It's really unfortunate to see that you do have people that are challenging Joe Biden, that are running on some of these progressive issues that those politicians actually champion and they're not willing to support them. I think that's very revealing to people. You mentioned earlier the threat of a spoiler effect being used by people like Barack Obama to encourage people to go ahead and vote for Joe Biden, even if he isn't their uh, first choice. I want to play you a clip from leading liberal podcast, Pods of America, where they made this argument pretty forcefully and get you to respond. If the people who voted for Jill Stein, just Jill Stein in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania had voted for Hillary instead, Donald Trump would have never become president. That's it. Right. And so... 
you know, I'm sure there's a lot of Cornell West fans out there. Um, you live in a swing state. You vote for Cornell West. You're helping Trump become president. That's it. And you can say, oh, well, it's Joe Biden's fault. He did this or that. No, no, no. It's, it's your decision. You get to decide whether you want to help Donald Trump become president or you don't. And if you want to help him, then you should vote for Cornell West or you should vote for Joe Manchin and his no labels ticket or you can vote for, you know, RFK Jr. if he decides to run third party. But if you don't want to help Trump become president, you got to vote for Joe Biden. That's it. Very simple. Now, I want to complicate that a little bit first with a quote from an article by Malika Jabali, I believe from 2017, where she looked at the voter count in Wisconsin and she wrote, in Wisconsin, the decline in black voter turnout between 2012 and 2016 was 86,830 votes. Hillary Clinton lost the state by a mere 22,748 votes like a, a quarter, a, a third of those votes. If Clinton won over more of the black Democrats who voted in 2012 in just three states, Wisconsin, Florida, and Michigan, she would have won the election. Now, all of that being said, what do you make of what John Favreau was arguing in that clip? The voter shaming is really not gonna help Joe Biden win. I, I wish people understood this. It's interesting to me that they always mention Jill Stein, but they don't mention Gary Johnson, as if Jill Stein was the only candidate that ran third party. The people that came out and voted for Jill Stein did not want to vote for Hillary Clinton. If the option was to vote for Jill Stein or stay home, those people would have stayed home. And that's what people like Pod Save America, that's what they have to understand. Uh, same thing with people who voted for Gary Johnson, similar situation. We fast forward to 2020 election. You had Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker, but you also had Spike Cohen and Joe Jorgensen on the Libertarian ticket as well. If you look at the numbers, what people have to understand is if you wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly want to vote for Hillary Clinton or for Joe Biden, you are going to vote for them. You are not going to vote for the third party candidate. But those people didn't want to. So voter shaming people who chose to vote third party, I think this is really ridiculous at this point. These are old, like draconian like type of thinking. And I say this because why do we have to be pigeonholed into one or two parties? You look at other countries and they have multiple parties and this isn't even an issue. So I think Pod Save America, you have to understand, they smeared the Bernie Sanders campaign. AOC chose to go into Pod Save America, right? The, the, the podcast that smeared that Bernie's campaign they are not there to support or promote any type of disruption or any type of radical uh, politics. They are there to keep you in the Democratic Party. And that's what people have to understand. We're going to see more of this as we get closer and closer to 2024. Yeah, I, so what you just said is so true. I, I voted for Gary Johnson and then Joe Jorgensen. I wouldn't have voted for any either of the two major party candidates, unless they had if they had adopted totally different policies that aligned with my views, then maybe I would have voted for them. But they're so far removed from that. It wasn't really going to be in contention. And, and um, more people, the libertarian candidates are always more successful, frankly, than the Green Party candidates. So if we were to cancel out all of the third party votes, it would mean given that more libertarians are more right-leaning and Green Party is more left-leaning, that even if all the Green Party people voted for Democrats and all of the libertarians voted for Republicans, that would mean Republicans benefited from that canceling out. Not to mention, per Malika Jabali's article, there's been no interrogation of why uh, all of those tens of thousands of black voters that would have swung, could have swung the election 
for Hillary Clinton, if they had turned out, who did vote for Barack Obama in 2012, chose to stay home and absolutely no interrogation of the Democratic Party's own role in failing to campaign in some of those states in particular. Correct. I mean, Hillary Clinton also ignored the Rust Belt. This was a big mistake, right? I mean, Bill Clinton knew to heavily campaign in the Rust Belt. He was able to win over uh, that region of the country. She decided not to. She decided to cater to the areas where I felt she was already doing well in to begin with. You cannot ignore the working class, especially you're supposed to be a Democrat. You cannot ignore the working class and continue to expect them to come out and support you. And I think the 2016 election showed everyone that uh, Donald Trump was not supposed to happen, but it did. So that should have been a wake up call for people. But mark my words, as we go into 2024, you're going to hear more of this rhetoric about Cornell West, uh, RK Jr., Marion Williamson. You're hearing some of it now, but it's going to get worse as we get into 2024. And I think it will be worse this time around than it was in 2020 because Joe Biden is doing so poorly. Mm. I just saw a video where he said uh, Putin is not doing well in Iraq. Mm. Putin has nothing to do with Iraq. This is really weird. Like, yeah. obviously, he got the country wrong. Yeah. So there, there are big issues here with Joe Biden. <laughs> it, it, Don't even worry about that. What could go wrong? Yeah, God, God We've never please. made a huge mistake about with the, regarding Iraq before. <laughs> Look, one other point I wanted to mention before we close out here is just that it's worth noting from the debate rigging standpoint that the Republican on the Republican side, the standard for participation is polling at one percent and having forty thousand individual donors. Mary Williamson is polling at eight or nine percent. RFK Jr. obviously has been holding steady at around twenty percent. And yet Democrats seem very confident in coming out and saying that there is no need for any kind of debate. There's a real democracy gap, it seems, between the parties that I think the voters are going to be able to discern. We'll see how that turns out for the Democratic Party in the long run. Thank you so much for joining us today, Savvy. Thank you. A recent bipartisan provision adopted by the Senate Intelligence Committee will halt funding for any, quote, secret government or contractor or efforts to retrieve or reverse engineer craft of exotic or non-Earth origin, according to The Hill opinion contributor uh, Marek von Rennenkampf. He says that this language adds credibility to recent claims about the government's efforts to recover craft. He also writes that Florida Senator Marco Rubio's recent comments that whistleblower David Grush is not the only one to come forward with this kind of information adds context to this bill. The bill tells individuals with knowledge of these activities to disclose, quote, all relevant information. Merrick von Rennenkampf joins us now to weigh in. Welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, great to discuss with you. Tell us more about this bill and just what you make of the um, increased conversation around UFOs in the wake of the David Grush interview. Are there a lot more uh, whistleblowers to come forward, a lot more people with actually direct knowledge of, uh, of, of UFO, of craft, of, of people driving the craft, et cetera? Aliens? No. <laughs> you can say it, Robbie. <laughs> Uh, no, it, it's a good question, Robbie. By, by all accounts, um, from all the reporting and, and the chatter that I'm seeing, and um, and I'm focusing uh, on Rubio's recent comments that that some very high clearance holders in very high positions, those are direct quotes from Senator Rubio, um, have come forward to the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, we learned just yesterday afternoon um, that Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who, along with uh, Senator Rubio, have really led the charge on this, is planning to hold an open hearing 
hopefully, potentially, likely with, with the whistleblower, Mr. Grush. So um, my hunch is that Congress would not go uh, through the exercise of putting together such, shall we say, groundbreaking and extraordinary legislation and hold open hearings if there were um, if there was nothing to this and if there were not other individuals who were corroborating Mr. Grush's uh, claims. Well, let me, let me push back against that. The counterargument would be that we have a Pentagon budget, which has failed, what, five consecutive audits. They just accidentally found $6.2 billion lying around that they're sending to Ukraine. Um, and that, the, given how loose the records seem to be kept over there, saying that you want a bill that is going to stop funding for these particular alien-related efforts it could just be purely performative. What would you say to someone who's thinking along those lines? Uh, that's a good point. Look, I worked at the Pentagon. I know the budget is is extra. It's just extravagant. I know funding goes into down rabbit holes, and and you're right. The the audit issue is a, is a big big problem. Um, I, I do want to focus to to get to your question on the fact that, and I'm kind of a government nerd. I worked again at, at DOD and briefly at the State Department, and. Um, I don't know if your viewers are familiar with what an inspector general is, but it's basically an internal cop that that ensures that an organization is is operating legally and above board and and correctly. Um, and I, I need to reiterate this: that the former inspector general of the entire intelligence community—that's 18 separate intelligence agencies—has found the whistleblowers' claims uh, that information was illegally held, withheld from Congress to be credible and urgent. Um, and that that's not something that happens if, you know, this is, again, this is a law enforcement body. This is a very serious um, uh, charge and, and allegation. And that's not something that, that just comes out of the blue if the Pentagon was trying to fudge some numbers or mess around with numbers on funding. Hmm. Hmm. So, so much of what we've heard recently is from um, people like Grush, you know, referencing others in the government who have the direct knowledge? It's always indirect um, knowledge. Would, would you know? Is this is this a step in the direction of actually hearing from the the relevant parties, not from you know, you know not from the secondhand sources, but from people with direct knowledge of things of UFO interest to the American people? Yeah, Gravi, it's a it's a really good question, uh, and I'll, I'll go back to Senator Rubio's comments. He explicitly said that he has he Senator Rubio has spoken to individuals with first-hand knowledge. Um, I think that hopefully that answers your question, but a, another kind of just to piggyback on my previous answer about um, the intelligence community inspector general, there's there's quite a bit of reporting that knowledgeable individuals who have actually worked on these alleged uh, illegal programs have testified under oath to the inspector general. And that is a large part of why, and they corroborated Mr. Grush's story, and that's a large reason why um, Mr. Grush's allegations were deemed urgent and incredible because they're, again, they're individuals with firsthand knowledge that are corroborating his claims. So much more to come, but but uh, I hope that answers your, your, your questions. So the idea is we know people have spoken to the inspector general who you're describing as this credible individual off the record. We have one uh, whistleblower coming forward in Grush, but we have no one else who's willing to testify directly. Do we expect, given that this is now kind of a semi-public issue, it's such a, a, a point of national discourse, but no one else has gone on the record. Do we expect them to actually come forward in these hearings and be willing to do so? And 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 if so, you know, why now? Yep, that's that's the million dollar question, Rihanna. Um, I, I 
I don't, I don't know is the answer. I suspect that there may be individuals that will come forward and testify publicly, um, or hopefully the folks that have testi testified behind closed doors to answer a question about why this is occurring now. Um, to the best of my understanding, uh, Senator Rubio has said that individuals have been coming forward to the Senate Intelligence Committee for, for years now. Mm -hmm. um, and we saw a slow trickle um, this has been uh, kind of slowly kind of working its way into the into the congressional legislation and, and primarily through the not to get nerdy here, but the National Defense Authorization Act, which is a must pass bill that goes through every year. And last year's language um, included some whistleblower protections. The, the current language that we're looking at now, which is just extraordinary, really uh, is, is that kind of language, but on steroids. It's really a beefed up version of that. And, it, and, and as you guys have probably seen, some of the language in, in the, in the um, Intelligence Authorization Act is, is truly extraordinary. Hmm. Can you weigh in a little bit on Kirsten Gillibrand's relationship to all of this? It does, we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, that it did seem like a disproportionate number of the actors that were invested in this particular issue happened to be right-leaning. Kirsten Gillibrand is obviously a Democrat. What, what do you make of her involvement? Uh, Senator uh, Harry Reid, his geographic proximity to where so much of this activity historically seems to have gone down, seemed to speak to why he would be interested. But, but why uh, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York? Yeah, Brianna, you're getting to one of maybe my, my favorite elements of the story, and that is truly, it is truly bipartisan. You're right. Harry Reid um, really took the initiative here early on. Um, Rubio kind of started the, the the conversation more recently, and then Gillibrand really took it and ran with it um, with some legend, uh, some some very, very historic legislation uh, last year, the, the year before. Um, so it, it is truly bipartisan. Senator Gillibrand has, has talked quite a bit about this, um, not very much um in in kind of mainstream media outlets you have to kind of dig to the the podcast level and the ufo twitter level to see her to see her remarks on this um but she she is really i think leading the charge and and rubio um as well but uh, but to see that that pair and i want to quickly re-emphasize or just emphasize that those are two former presidential candidates um they're they're serious politicians and and they are they're all in on this um and if you i'll also just quickly add um Senator Rubio and Senator Gillibrand uh, spearheaded a letter to the Department of Defense that had 16 uh, other co-signers on it that, that I think there were seven or eight um, other presidential, former presidential candidates that signed on to this. So this is a, a remarkably bipartisan issue. You might not hear about it all the time, but if you dig dig deeper, um, some some very interesting names pop up that are mm. that are very much involved in this from both parties. You hear about it all the time, if you're watching our show, at least. Uh, Mark, it was wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it. You may remember our coverage of U.S. Virgin Islands delegate Stacey Plaskett's ties to Jeffrey Epstein. Well, journalist Lee Fong took a closer look and found that before Plaskett won a seat in Congress, she actually worked for Epstein's personal lawyer and tax accountant, known for peddling influence for the powerful pedophile. Investigative reporter Lee Fong joins us now to expand on this. So great to see you, Lee. Good to see you. 
So please tell us more about what you found. I think where we left the story off was evidence that um, she had wanted him to attend a fundraising event with, you know, with full knowledge of who he was. This was this was up to, I think, just a year before his death. This was like 2018. So, you, you know, no pretending you didn't know what a monster he was, all of that kind of thing, the usual denials we get from people. This was full awareness. Um, you know, tell us more about how deep her connections might have run. Yeah, so these, um, the story that I wrote about uh, Delegate Stacey Plaskett uh, shows much deeper ties to Jeffrey Epstein than previously known. Um, this is a sitting member of Congress, someone who votes in committee, uh, who has a lot of influence in politics and the media, who before she entered Congress um, in 2013 and 2014, worked for the boutique uh, legal and accounting firm that served Jeffrey Epstein. This is Erica Keller Hall's um, firm uh, in the Virgin Islands. Uh, you know, we've seen in the media and so many reports, um, you know, looking through documents, flight logs, uh, connecting the dots of Jeffrey Epstein's network that he cultivated influence with some of the leading private equity executives in this country, Leon Black and others, other corporate executives, uh, political leaders, philanthropic leaders, uh, prominent scientists and politicians. Well, here's someone who uh, literally worked uh, for one of Epstein's closest aides, someone who helped him peddle influence, uh, win lucrative tax breaks, uh, engage in a lot of the business deals, transfer the property that he used to um, molest and, and abuse women and engage in human trafficking, uh, and, and who's still, you know, um, uh, c connected to Epstein. Epstein, after he passed away, two, uh, two days before he passed away, uh, he signed um, documents to Erica Keller Halls that, that gave her control of his estate. Uh, she's continuing to uh, work for his estate. Uh, so this was really one of um, Epstein's closest aides. And your story paints the picture of a little bit of a cover-up here. You write that the two years during which uh, Plaskett worked for Epstein's lawyer, those two years are notably missing from her LinkedIn account. And moreover, it's not just that she worked for this lawyer, but that she previously served as counsel on the Virgin Islands Economic Development Authority, which granted Epstein $300 million and allegedly improperly obtained tax exemptions over the course of two decades. Yeah, this is really kind of a, a, an astounding fact about Epstein that has come to light in the last year uh, with some of the latest uh, litigation um, around his abuses. Uh, Epstein you know, purchased uh, various properties in the Virgin Islands, of course, Little St. James Island, where he abused women, but also other properties. He domiciled there, and that was his residence. Um, for his $500 million uh, business empire, he received... $300 million in tax exemptions over 20 years from the Special Economic Development Office in the Virgin Islands. He uh, claimed that his company was a biotech startup uh, studying gene technology um, and therefore, you know, needed special startup uh, tax incentives. But there's no evidence that he uh, engaged in any of this kind of startup activity. You know, he just had property and financial investments. He Im improperly received these massive um, tax exemptions from excise tax, income tax, um, uh, property tax. Uh, and uh, it, there's still big questions about how he received these uh, very lucrative uh, tax credits he re and uh, given to him by this economic development uh, agency, 
where Plaskett worked for several years. Uh, she then went through the revolving door to this specialized um, tax accountant uh, legal firm, Erica Kellerhall's firm, that, that helped channel uh, these tax credits to Epstein and then uh, went into Congress. And of course, the, the documents paint um, uh, many other uh, interesting details. Uh, Stacey Plaskett was introduced to Epstein uh, by Erica Keller Halls. Uh, she, Erica Keller Halls helped facilitate many of the direct uh, donations uh, to Stacey Plaskett uh, as um, Plaskett uh, solicited Epstein in 2018, a year before his death, uh, for $30,000 to the DCCC, the House Democrats campaign arm. Again, that was Erica Keller Halls uh, uh, forwarding on that appeal. Hmm. And, and you write, you know, in your Substack piece about this that Plaskett uh, has misled the public about the extent of her ties to Epstein, which I think is very interesting given um, how militant she was, you know, that every I and T be exactly crossed and dotted in, for instance, Matt Taibbi's testimony about the Twitter files where, you know, because of the uh, not significant but and, and corrected error about which acronym uh, was in, involved, not that, you know, we've, we've gone over why ultimately that doesn't matter and in fact that agency was involved in in the funding of, of this kind was involved in the pressuring of the Twitter files uh, she you know said that Taibbi should uh, reminding him that uh, you know perjuring yourself before Congress is a is a crime that could carry like five years um, in prison has, has she been uh, as honest as she demands everyone else be with respect to her own involvement with Jeffrey Epstein look earlier this month, uh, Stacey Plaskett appeared on the NPR affiliate station in the Virgin Islands to, to address some of these accusations that have come out in these recent court filings. And she claimed that she was unaware of Epstein's donations and was alerted by the media. That's clearly not true. Uh, we see from the many emails that you, you covered on this program and what I covered in my story that she was actively soliciting Epstein's money, um, knew exactly who he was. Um, and it, it, during the same interview, she claimed that she was the only politician uh, who received Epstein money to then donate that money back to charity. Uh, that's clearly not true. Um, many Virgin Island local legislators who received this money donated money to charity. Chuck Schumer, who received Epstein donations, uh, gave it to charity. You know, these emails show that uh, th there was a very methodical uh, political operation from Epstein and his aides. He wanted exemptions to sex offender law so he didn't have to disclose when he was traveling in and out of the country. He wanted these tax exemptions. And he also uh, wanted to make sure that he had no local critics. You know, cultivating people like uh, Stacey Plaskett meant that he wouldn't have as many prominent local critics of his um, of his criminal behavior. And look, uh, at, at the end of the day, Stacey Plaskett did donate the $8,000 in direct donations she received from Epstein. But we see from this recently disclosed, unsealed uh, court deposition that Epstein and his aides actually bundled $30,000, in excess of $30,000 to Stacey Plaskett. Um, she has not donated uh, those bundled donations uh, to charity. Incredible. And I don't suppose there's been much of a reaction, or I should just ask you, has there been any, re any reaction from congressional Democrats about this or Republicans? Uh, and do you expect to find additional relationships as the J.P. Morgan case proceeds? Well, look, as we've seen over the years of Epstein investigations, I mean, this was a bipartisan controversy. You know, there were Republicans and Democrats that were in the, the world of, of Epstein that you know, traveled on his jet uh, and, and received his either philanthropic or political donations. 
So there, there really hasn't been, this hasn't been turned into a, a partisan kind of issue where one side's looking into it. Uh, both sides uh, have so far ignored uh, the mm. latest uh, revelations that we see in these court filings. Um, you know, uh, we, we, we will see much, I think, many more disclosures from this uh, litigation that we, that's, going, that's going forward in the Southern District of New York. J.P. Morgan uh, was sued by two parties last year, a number of victims of Epstein. That case has been settled. But then there's this ongoing case between the Virgin Islands and uh, J.P. Morgan that has really revealed this entirely, uh, not new, but uh, newly unearthed uh, political network in the Virgin Islands that Epstein controlled. Uh, The governor of the Virgin Islands, Governor Bryan, uh, is set to uh, be deposed. Um, We'll see if those uh, deposition records are filed in the court and, and, and released to the public. Incredible reporting as usual. Lee Fong, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. New details are coming to light about the Ocean Gate submersible. According to Current Affairs, past interviews contain quotes of late Ocean Gate CEO Stockton Rush ignoring concerns from others about the Titan submersible. In 2018, Ocean Gate's director of marine operations produced a document warning of the quote potential dangers to passengers of the Titan as the submersible reached extreme depths. And a few months after, others in the industry sent Rush a letter telling him that his experimental approach could lead to catastrophic problems. Current Affairs reports. In interviews, he reportedly showed levels of self-confidence, and some of his statements allegedly include the following. I have broken some rules to make this. The carbon fiber and titanium, there is a rule that you don't do that. Well, I did. At some point, safety just is pure waste. I think I can do this just as safely by breaking the rules. The sub industry is obscenely safe because they have all these regulations, but it also hasn't innovated or grown because they have all these regulations. Innovative approach flies in the face of the submersible orthodoxy, but that is the nature of innovation. We have heard the baseless cries of, you are going to kill someone way too often, and I take this as a serious personal insult. In an interview, Rush allegedly also said, I think it was General MacArthur who said, you're remembered for the rules you break. Yeah, and I think we actually have a clip clip of that uh, video of him making that statement right here. I'd like to be remembered as an innovator. Um, I think it was General MacArthur said, you're remembered for the rules you break. And, you know, I've broken some rules to make this. I think I've broken them with, with logic and good engineering behind me, the carbon fiber and titanium. There's a rule you don't do that. Well, I did. Now, specifically on that point, scientists have said that that having that mixture of materials in the hole was a red flag for anybody with any engineering background because of the nature of the contraction and expansion under pressure of the hole going to great depths, that you're going to have micro fractures accumulating over time, that the the integrity of the ship is not going to rebound fully, and that over time, eventually, this sort of um, uh, tragedy was inevitable. What do you make of this? Well, I mean, he... Uh, he lived. He, it's not that he just sent other people to this fate. He was one of the participants. So he lived this philosophy of, you know, being combative with whatever protocols you're supposed to follow, and that was absolutely the wrong thing to do in this case. And it sounds like people, even within his own company, were concerned about what he was doing. I don't. Uh, I, I have some, I guess, sympathy for the idea that always following the rules is not necessarily good. And just because 
there's a rule for how you're supposed to do it doesn't necessarily mean that is necessarily right. What are the interests of the of the entity or individual or regulator or company that forced you to do that rule? And is it totally necessary? You know, it, that's just like from an abstract point of view. But clearly, it was in this case something they should have done differently. Mm. Ocean Gate's director of marine operations, his name was Mr. Lotridge, Lockridge, Lockridge, I suppose. In court documents, he urged the company to uh, get the get the vessel certified, but said that he had been told that OceanGate was unwilling to pay for such an assessment. Now, that doesn't sound to me so much like I want to innovate. It sounds like maybe I have some recognition that the uh, regulations, uh, the certification might be beneficial, but I am interested in cutting corners for financial reasons. And, and I, it's also worth noting that it's been reported that there are about 10 vessels in the world that can are designed to go to these kinds of depths. All of them are certified, except for the one that ended up imploding at the bottom of the ocean floor near the Titanic. So, I mean, this does, it's, it's hard to escape that this does feel somewhat like a parable about the competing values here of kind of deregulatory camps versus the benefits of regulation. That's not to say every regulation is made equally, and it's not to say that there aren't times, laws, and rules that impose, you know, um, the kinds of restrictions that can be limiting and are, in fact, unnecessary. But I do think that this is a significant warning that there are oftentimes scientific basis, safety basis, safety rationale for having certain kinds of regulations, especially when you have an individual like Mr. Rush, who is not just implicating his own life in these kinds of uh, scientific exploratory events, but is leading innocents who don't have the same information that he does about the integrity of this vessel and are perhaps following his example and thinking, well, if he's going to go down, it must be safe, when obviously that wasn't the case. Sure. I mean, he didn't force them like at gunpoint to get in this submersible. This is something they, they want to do. This is something they paid an exorbitant amount of money to do. I, I have to, I mean, they should have anticipated that it is an inherently risky thing to do. Um, and taken that into account. I've heard, now I've heard conflicting reports on especially the, um, the, the, young, the young man passenger, the passenger who was the, the son of, of one of the other mm -hmm. passengers who, who uh, obviously died. Yeah. I've now heard conflicting reports. I, I've heard it reported that he didn't want to do it. And oh, but I heard I, then, that I, his... then more recently I've heard that the, his, his mother was right. supposed to be on it, but he wanted to do it so much that she gave up her place to him. Yeah, he wanted so to I'm set a sure. record for the deepest um, solving of a Rubik's Cube, yes, something right, like that's that. What I saw. Um, which is. You know, some some people were critical of the mother for having made that admission, like it was an indictment of her own kind of parenting choices or something to allow her child to do that or to admit that, it, you know, it should have been her. I mean, that's something that she's going to, I'm sure, live with and wrestle with for the rest of her life, the playing out the counterfactuals. Not that it was her fault that the ship was designed so dangerously and it was such a risky endeavor. But again, I mean, the fundamental issue here is, is I think there are, there are real psycholog there's, there's psychological evidence of the human, uh, human being's inability to properly assess their own risk. 
Um, and there are some real, real issues from a legal perspective of having the law designed so that if you assume, you can you can say that you assumed risk without really having full knowledge of the risk that you're assumed, that you've assumed. And Stockton Rush was in the position to actually know what the risks were in this experiment. And I think misrepresented the, the safety here. I mean, this is a letter from Ocean Gate's marketing team said uh, the marketing of the Titan had been at minimum misleading because it claimed that the submersible would meet or exceed the safety standards of a risk mm -hmm. assessment company known as DNV, even though the company had no plans to have the craft formally certified by the agency. Like at a certain point, you are actively lying about the safety uh, standards that your vessel has or can meet. And despite all of the, I think, you know, shot and fraud around rich people paying to go to the bottom of the ocean and whether that was an advisable choice. They too were misled and potentially uh, well, criminally misled in this. Yeah, I'm situation. sure, and I'm sure there's going to be litigation fallout from this for that may be you know perfectly appropriate given what he has said about the policies he didn't want to follow. Um, one, I wanted to end with. Um, I actually, this is almost relevant to the conversation we're ha we were having about Trump and the documents and Milley. Um, he quoted uh, uh, MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur, in that in, in the about you're only remembered for the rules you break. MacArthur obviously was the head of U.S. forces for a long time and in the Korean War, and then was agitating to continue the Korean War at a time where the Truman administration wanted to wind it down. Mm -hmm. He was trying to. He was he like went rogue to try to inspire public support for it. He was having conversations with other governments about continuing it, and so he got fired by Truman. Fired him, and uh, and the, this quote I love from Truman, who later said, "I fired him because he wouldn't respect the authority of the president. I didn't fire him because he was a dumb, dumb son of a bee, <laughs> although he was. But that's not against the law for generals. If it was, half to three quarters of them would be in jail." Um, example of. The the general the generals going against what the president's desire for peace was and being fired for it speaks to what we're talking about with the Trump Milly Iran thing. All right. Well, look, I hope I'd love to hear you guys weigh in. Does this make you reflect at all on the value of these kind of regulatory efforts? And does this change anything about how you've been interpreting what happened in this uh, submersible tragedy? Stick around. We'll have a rising for you right after this. The New York Times has independently confirmed a key claim in the Hunter Biden whistleblower saga. Gary Shapley, a lead IRS official in the Biden probe, alleged that U.S. Attorney David C. Weiss, the lead Department of Justice prosecutor on that case, was rejected by federal prosecutors in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles when he requested that Biden be charged for tax crimes committed in 2014 and 2015 in those jurisdictions. In a June 27th report from The New York Times, writers Glenn Thrush and Michael S. Schmidt write in the 21st paragraph, quote, in mid-2022, Mr. Weiss reached out to the top federal prosecutor in Washington, Matthew Graves, to ask his office to pursue charges and was rebuffed, according to Mr. Shapley's testimony. A similar request to prosecutors in the Central District of California, which includes Los Angeles, was also rejected, Mr. Shapley testified. A second a former IRS official who has not been identified told House Republicans the same story. That episode was confirmed independently to The New York Times by a person with knowledge of the situation. 
This was written in a story detailing the competing accounts of Attorney General Merrick Garland and the IRS whistleblower. Garland has denied the whistleblower's claims. Now, Shapley is defending his claims and going even further. In an interview with CBS News last night, he uh, says he was stopped from pursuing leads. Let's watch some of that. True's father. There were certain investigative steps that we weren't allowed to take that could have led us to President Biden. And you wanted to take them? We needed to take them. And you weren't allowed to take them. That's correct. So this is all a little bit complicated, sure. uh, but the gist of it is that this is shapely, that IRS whistleblower is claiming that the investigation was not handled, Republican, uh, not handled well. Republicans are upset with Merrick Garland. I think there have even been efforts to like impeach him or it's been talked about. The concern is, did Merrick Garland, the Biden attorney general, get in the way of David Weiss, who was retained by the Biden administration but had been selected during the Trump years to pursue the Hunter Biden issues? Did Merrick Garland get in the way of that? And there are now some quasi-competing claims here. Uh, David Weiss himself has not been particularly vocal on, on if, if, if it's his view that Garland really obstructed him. He hasn't quite come out and said that. In fact, I think he submitted a letter saying everything was kind of all hunky-dory. I think that's the second time I've used that phrase on the show today. I don't know what's <laughs> going on with me. David Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, and, and so we need to hear from Weiss, ultimately. And yeah. I, I think Republicans should ultimately bring him before the weaponization of the Federal Government Committee. But now here's the New York Times saying that it's not just Shapely. There is another IRS official that they have independently confirmed who who also has spoken to the fact that there was pushback, from, if, if not from Garland himself, but from his people in L.A. and D.C., who, who, despite Weiss wanting to pursue charges there, said no. Yeah, so this is a real he said, he said situation where your view of what happened has largely, up until this point, fallen along your feelings of partisan credibility and the various actors here. So the argument that's being made by Biden affiliates, Democrats, left-leaning liberal people, or whomever, is that if a Trump-appointed figure did not pursue these charges, there must not have been anything there, Republicans are saying, well, no, he was rebuffed. And Weiss, to your point, being silent, this was kind of neutral. Now having a ostensibly lib liberal uh, paper like the New York Times independently confirmed the story that there was an effort by prosecutors to bring charges that were, in fact, rebuffed, lends credibility to that claim, and doesn't necessarily go against what Merrick Garland is saying, that the claim never rose to him. But there's a lot of plausible right. deniability here. And if it were the case that somebody in the Justice Department thought that this, um, these, these crimes, these alleged uh, tax violations were worth escalating and they were stopped, that obviously feeds the flames of conservatives right. who are accusing Democrats of having political prosecutions. Because Garland has said that, well, if David Weiss really wanted to bring charges and, and the, the relevant authorities in those municipalities said no, he would allow, he would make it so that he could do it anyway, that Garland would make it so Weiss could bring those charges anyway. Weiss could have asked Garland for special attorney status to go over the local people's heads. He didn't end up doing that. Um, but again, it might have been him. Maybe it's me as communication. Maybe he thought, maybe he didn't get that he could do that. We have a lot of questions that, yeah. um, that Weiss needs to face 
um, about this specifically. I find it interesting the way the New York Times framed this whole article. Mm. They, again, they got a great scoop. Mm. Oftentimes, they're good reporters. They're, they're, they they possess the um, the cra the tools, the craft of reporting. Yeah. Buried paragraph, so many paragraphs down that I had to read it like several times. And I'm like, wait, wait, where's the scoop? They're saying it's a scoop. I don't see the scoop. Yeah. It's down there. Yeah. They, it's not in the headline. It's it's not led with. It's 21st, the producer's saying it's the 21st paragraph. Um, yeah. one, one wonders, again, don't want to be conspiratorial about it, but one wonders if there's something like, oh, this is kind of bad for Biden. Let's yeah. keep that. Well, and specifically, down what there. Shapley has said is that, you know, there's this team found evidence of, and this is from uh, New York Post reporting, evidence of several illegal business expenses during the course of the investigation um, and suggested that the evidence of alleged crimes perpetrated by Hunter likely would have landed any other person in prison. Uh, there were personal expenses that were taken as business expenses prostitutes, sex club memberships, hotel rooms for reported drug dealers. Um, and Shapley went on to say that Hunter was found to have owed $2.2 million in taxes to the federal government. So it's understandable, given the color of what uh, Hunter is being accused of, why the Biden yes. administration would not want to be getting into the nitty gritty of those particular alleged crimes in the middle of a, an election season. But to go back to an earlier segment that we did today, this is partly why so many people just wish that there was more openness in the primary process so there wasn't a potential effort to suppress what should be a legitimate legal investigation right. and the effort of protecting a Democratic Party nominee that doesn't actually have to be the Democratic Party nominee. And the conservative concern is that if they're willing to say, no, don't take this any further about tax issues, Maybe they're saying, no, don't take, willing to say, don't take this any further about m more serious issues of, uh, of influence peddling or that these tax issues would themselves, if pursued, mm -hmm. would uncover evidence, in the course of yeah. adjudicating that evidence of a much more serious crime. Right. So it's, um, right. it's very, very disturbing, very interesting. Interesting how the media frames it, yeah. uh, but shows that there there is more. I know people may be getting tired. I don't know if they're getting tired about the Hunter Biden investigation and what's being promised and what's being. But this is a significant finding yeah. of a potentially badly handled investigation. It shows the necessity of Republicans to competently evaluate and pursue knowledge into what's really going on in our justice system. And I do think that liberals have to keep in mind as they are confused about why there would be continued support for Donald Trump while he's in the midst of his own investigations. It's because to those who are in a different media environment, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, the implications of influence peddling unsubstantiated as of yet, as they are, are still in many people's minds equivalent, balancing out what Donald Trump is going going through. And if you're looking at the substance of these crimes and you're saying, okay, well, maybe Donald Trump did wrongly keep these documents. Maybe they were confidential documents and he shouldn't have had them. But what is ultimately what feels like a, a it's a paper crime, a, mm -hmm. a an administrative crime on one side compared to these allegations, as yet unsubstantiated, but allegations of influence peddling are going in the public imagination to cancel out. And I do think that sometimes liberals in their siloed media circuits where they're not at all discussing what's going on with Hunter Biden, except to compliment Joe Biden on what a good father he is, which I think is legitimate, that is true at the very least. They are missing out on a big half of the story that explains a lot of voter behavior right now. Mm. All right, we'll continue to follow this, of course, and we'll have more rising right after this.
President Joe Biden seems to have misspoke when talking about Russian President Vladimir Putin to reporters. Let's watch. Vladimir Putin has been weakened by recent events. It's hard to tell, but he's clearly losing the war in Iraq. He's losing the war at home. And he has uh, become a bit of a pariah around the world. Uh, and it's not just NATO. It's not just the European Union. It's Japan. It's, it's you know, it's 40 Putin losing the war in Iraq. Hmm, this he didn't marks, even know he was in the game. <laughs> <laughs> this marks the second time this week the president mixed up the names of Ukraine and Iraq. Uh, after a this comes after a new poll shows Biden garnering a whopping 60 percent disapproval rate, a job disapproval rate with 31 percent approving the job he's doing in the White House. Not not a good time. Right. But when has it been a good time in recent history for Joe Biden? This, uh, this gaffe, this particular gaffe, reminds me of the very similar uh, mistake George Bush made um, recently or within the last year, year. or two yeah. um, when talking about the Ukraine war. Let's play it. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> 75. Uh, right, and I think the takeaway is that both Bush and Biden were so used to thinking about the losing in a, the U.S., things not going well in Iraq, the criticism that this war was not advisable and was a disaster, and they've internal, maybe they've, even though they've never, I don't know that they've acknowledged those criticisms uh, to any um, appreciable extent, but have actually internalized them because they made a slip of the tongue acknowledging them. Right. Well, it's interesting that in the George Bush clip, he attributes his a uh, verbal slip to his age being 75. Joe Biden is obviously considerably older than Bush, despite ascending to the presidency much later than Bush did. And, you know, this is the question on many Americans' minds, that even folks who personally like Joe Biden or even think that he's done as good a job as he could do, given the circumstances, simply think that he's too old to be president. And while I, I certainly know it's the case that people— slip up. We all do it. You and I sit here and do it every day, reading the teleprompter, et cetera. You exchange words for each other. It's not that big a deal. At a certain point, the optics start to look bad for Joe Biden when you read all of his gaffes right. and you start to measure how frequently the gaffes are coming and ask yourself questions about whether or not there could be geopolitical implications, depending on the timing and uh, substance of the gaffes. Well, and, and really, beyond the gaffe itself, the point he's trying to make was wrong. Is is Russia clearly losing the war in Ukraine? Um, I, I guess they're losing. Ukraine's losing. We're all losing. Everyone's losing. People are dying. It's it's going on. You're right. They haven't. Russia has not succeeded in conquering the entire country. I don't know if that that's really what they're they've set out to do. Um, they've certainly um, uh, made a spectacular show of force. They've 
They've crippled key Ukrainian infrastructure. They've occupied Ukrainian uh, cities. And they have uh, many more military um, tools to put at their disposal, frankly, than the Ukrainians do if this continues on. I mean, Ukraine... Ukraine could be down to the last man before Russia has to seriously work. Now, I, I won't say there's been no blowback for Putin or for Russia. Obviously, this, uh, this Wagner group, um, uh, described as a, as a coup or a show of dislike of Putin, uh, obviously got resolved, but, you know, has maybe um, shown that there's some weakness in the regime. I, I, I'm not going to pretend this has all gone terrifically or anything, any stretch of the imagination for Russia. But I think it's just—it's certainly naive to say, well, yeah, he's losing, so he's going to lose soon, so we don't need to do anything to facilitate a diplomatic resolution to this conflict. That's what I'm afraid I'm hearing. Because they're just going to lose. That sounds like, yeah, we're going to keep sending Ukraine money and resources and everything because, you know, Russia's losing and then they'll lose, which is not what's going to happen. Given the nuclear realities of the situation, this is like— you know, I could get into a fight with a kitten and it could scratch me and it could hurt. I mm -hmm. don't love cats for that very reason. Mm -hmm. They've got a lot of pointy bits. But the idea that if it push came to shove, that I couldn't physically overpower a cat mm -hmm. is absurd, right? Mm -hmm. And so the question is, am I willing to pull that trigger? Am I willing to escalate the situation in a way that rids me of my problem, that keeps me safe ultimately. And that is the, the problem that we've been in, in yeah. the, the, we've confront, been confronted with since the beginning of this conflict. When what person's imagination is Ukraine going to defeat Russia meaningfully when they have the ultimate yeah. trump card in their nuclear capacity? And is our continued support of Ukraine in bolstering its ability to fight with Russia beyond what its independent capacity could be, escalating the conflict to the point where the proxy war becomes a war between two actual nuclear powers, and Russia potentially feels more empowered to go ahead and use that ultimate trump card. That is the fundamental danger here. So yes, the, any, the discussion of who's winning and who's right. not winning ultimately misses the point, unless you believe for some reason that Ukraine, with its significantly less um, uh, capable military infrastructure can beat Russia, then what are we even talking about here? It's just a matter of time. Right. A matter of time in which, I'm sorry, but Ukraine is being slowly destroyed. We had the dam. It's horrible. The, the, it's horrible The fallout of that is going to be felt for a generation. Now, the, the counter-argument is that you want the diplomacy to be happening under conditions that are more advantageous to Ukraine and more harmful mm -hmm. to Russia. And there have been various points in the war during which negotiators have said, this is a good time for Ukraine to negotiate. It's in a better footing to negotiate. And at various points, the U.S. or U.K. have scuttled those kinds of negotiations in a way that ultimately is likely to be in the detriment of Ukraine hoping that there's going to be a point down the line where some kind of military victory or short-term victory is perceived as advantaging Ukraine in a negotiation context. And that is just a, such a dangerous game of roulette that is being played. It seems, it seems relentlessly short-sighted. I mean, it, it obligates us to keep giving funding that I don't know how willing the American people are, or at least the Republican electorate is, to continue. 
But it, but it doesn't do any favors for either the, the uh, Ukrainian people or the Russian people. Right. Well, this issue, of course, is one that is front of mind for people as they look toward um, the election season. So both the substance of Joe mm -hmm. Biden's gaffe and the gaffe itself are going to be front and center. People are agitating for someone other than Joe Biden to run. We've seen the polls. We've discussed them ad nauseum. We know the Democratic Party is very forceful and unrepentant in its choice to shut down debates. So we'll continue to follow this story and to see whether or not there's any cracks that emerge in the Democratic Absolutely. Party's defense of Joe Biden. Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, uh, we will update you on any new developments with the Hunter Biden whistleblower saga, the Donald Trump's documents case, and everything else. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.